Good morning, podcasters. Due to a technical hiccup, part of the recording from Sunday um, was missed, and so I am going to re-record the first part of the sermon for you here. So we are beginning a brand new series here at Tamworth Elim, and following the pattern of previous years, around this time we like to put the spotlight on one particular book of the Bible. And then rather than picking a few choice verses, we take a good number of weeks to work our way through the entire book. And this gives us a chance to perhaps think a little bit deeper, to tackle some of the stuff that maybe we would ordinarily just skip over, because the Bible is hard sometimes, right? And ultimately, our aim with this series is to deepen our understanding of God's word to us. So in previous years, we've um, spent time looking at First and Second Corinthians. Um, but this time around, we're going to be looking at the book of Philippians. Philippians is the 50th book of the Bible. So if you're finding it in your own Bible, you can either count 50 from the front or 16 from the back. I will leave that up to you. And we do encourage you as well with this particular series to bring your own Bible to church. That way you can make notes in the margins, you can highlight bits as we go along. And that will hopefully be helpful to you in your personal study. So let me start this series off with a couple of facts about this particular book, just to whet your appetite. Fact number one, the book is really a letter. Although you knew that one, didn't you? Philippians is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And an apostle is just someone who has been sent by somebody else, like an ambassador. Paul very much saw himself as an ambassador for Christ and often refers to himself as an apostle. It's one of 13 letters contained in the New Testament written by Paul. And it's addressed to the church or the gathered community of believers that were found in the ancient city of Philippi. Fact number two, Philippi was really Roman. So the city was named after King Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. I'm sure you've heard of him, but in Paul's time, it was a prosperous Roman colony. This meant that even though Philippi was in Greece, the people who lived there were considered to be citizens of Rome. And they were really proud of this. They dressed like Romans, they spoke in Latin, they ate lasagna, all of it. It also meant that there were not a lot of Jews who were living there. And so, unlike some of his other letters, Paul makes no reference in Philippians to the Old Testament. It wasn't too much of an issue for Paul that Philippi was Roman because as well as being Jewish, he was a Roman citizen himself. And I'm sure we're going to come back to that later on in the series. Fact number three. The letter is really a thank you note. So Paul is writing this letter while he's under house arrest. And Luke um, writes about this particular incarceration in Acts 28, which you can read for yourself. But essentially, Paul is stuck in Rome. 
He's allowed to live in his own rented accommodation, but he's under guards. He was most likely chained to a Roman officer all day. It meant going to the bathroom was super awkward. Um, But during his time, he was allowed visitors, and he continued to preach the gospel to those that came to see him. But his movement was restricted, and the Philippian church um, supported him during this time. They sent a chap called Epaphrodites, Pappy, to his friends, um, with a financial gift to support Paul during this time. Um, And he actually remained with Paul for a while, and he supported him in his ministry. Um, And there's a good chance that it was Epaphrodites, Pappy, who delivered this letter to the Philippians from Paul. Um, So essentially, Paul is saying, thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for looking after me during this difficult time. Fact number four, it's all about joy. So one thing you'll notice as you read through Philippians is that Paul is aware that he's running out of time. While he's under house arrest, his future is uncertain. There's a very real danger that he will be executed in the not too distant future. And he speaks quite openly about this. One of the other things he does is he uses this letter to introduce Timothy, somebody who's going to be replacing him when he's gone taking over his ministry. And yet, joy is what he returns to again and again and again. It occurs 16 times in this letter in a variety of different settings. Paul's joy, their joy, their joy, shared joy, and how they can continue to be filled with joy. It's a letter that is filled with hope despite the uncertainty of the future. Fact number five. The thank you note is really a mission report. Are you keeping up? So Paul spends quite a lot of this letter talking about um, how the mission is going, telling the Philippians what's happening. Paul saw his whole life as a mission given to him by Jesus, the main aim of which was to advance the gospel, to take the message of Jesus wherever he felt led by the Holy Spirit. And Paul was prepared to travel really, really far to do that. He travelled more than 10,000 miles in his lifetime which he did without the use of cars or planes um, or even roller skates. In the New Testament, there are 14 different locations that are mentioned where he planted churches, although there was probably more. And Philippi, interestingly, bonus fact, was his first church in uh, Europe, his first European church. But of course, now Paul was stuck in Rome under house arrest. And so this letter is firstly to assure the Philippians that despite his incarceration, the gospel is continuing to spread, but also to remind them of their continuing responsibility to advance the mission, to advance the gospel. And Paul very much thought of himself and the Philippians as partners in that regard. And so part of this report is Paul encouraging the Philippians in their own witness. How can they continue to be a light in the darkness? Or as he puts it in this letter, how can they continue to shine like stars in the sky? And so although this book slash letter slash thank you note slash mission report is only four chapters long, there's quite a lot that Paul crams into it for us. So let's dive in, shall we? If you've been counting 50 from the front, you should be about there by now. Philippians 1. Verse 1 says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, 
grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So often when Paul writes letters, as I've said already, he will refer to himself as an apostle, but here he just shortens it to servant of Christ Jesus. And throughout all of his letters, Paul is consistent in his elevation of Jesus above himself. Later in this letter, he tells the Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus was his raison d'etre. It was his reason for being. He lived only to serve him. And he makes that very clear for us, even at the start of this letter. As well as his own name, you can see that he mentions Timothy. It's unlikely that Timothy had anything to do with the letter's composition, but he's wanting to endorse Timothy's ministry amongst them. A bit later on, he tells them that he's going to be sending Timothy to them, and so he wants them to know that they are working together. You can trust this guy. Timothy is my friend. He's in it with me. And then he addresses the letter to God's holy people. Or you may have a version on your laps that says, the saints. Now, in Paul's mind, these aren't special people who have been particularly good, but actually all believers. And Paul often spoke about the church in this way. So in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Now if you're sanctified, it means that you're made right with God. It's as though you've lived the perfect life, but of course none of us have. So our sanctification comes through Christ Jesus. Jesus makes us right with God. Being called to be holy means that we live in such a way that the sanctification we've received from Jesus is evidenced in our lives. We start to think and act differently because we've been made right. So for Paul, it's not that we're on a journey to become holy, but rather we are holy because of Jesus and we're on a journey to get better at being holy. Okay? You with me? So a bit later on in this letter, he says, let us live up to what we've already attained. Let us start to act and live as though we are holy because Jesus has made us that way. And so this then is a letter for all of Jesus' followers, including those who are in charge of the church, the overseers and the deacons. And this is how he begins. He says, I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this day until now. And so straight away we see these themes that we've already spoken about coming to the forefront. I thank God every time I remember you, he's grateful for their support. I always pray with joy. They've been a source of joy to him during this time. Remember this letter is all about joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel, they are working together to advance the gospel of Jesus. And then the next verse, the next verse is where I want to put the main focus this morning because it's an amazing little bit of encouragement that Paul offers here at the start of the letter. He says this, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. I think this is a very loaded statement. I think there's a lot that goes behind this simple verse, a lot that's gone on in Paul's life and Paul's ministry that means he's able to bring them this particular word of encouragement. So let me just break this down for a bit this morning. 
The first thing we notice is that Paul is confident. Not confident in himself, but confident in the work that God is doing in their lives. As I've already mentioned, the church in Philippi was the first community of believers in Europe. And Luke actually records for us how the church came into being. And it's this amazing story that you can find in Acts chapter 16. Um, And I really recommend that you read the whole chapter for yourselves, either later on today or in the week before Life Group, um, because I haven't really got time to go into uh, all of the detail for you this morning, but I'm going to try and give you a condensed version um, so you have some context for this confidence of Paul's. You see, Paul had originally not been intending to go to Philippi. He instead had been trying to head over to Asia, and he'd been prevented from doing so by the Holy Spirit. And as he continued on, he received a vision of a man from Macedonia begging him to come and help. It's not clear how he knew he was from Macedonia, but Paul went anyway, landing first in Samothrace and then going up to Neapolis and eventually up to Philippi. And as I mentioned earlier, it was a Roman colony, so there were not many Jews, and so there was no synagogue. And Paul's normal way that he preached to people as he arrived somewhere, he would go and he would find a synagogue and he would preach there. But of course it didn't have one, so he's just sort of left wandering around, looking for where people gather that may be interested in hearing his message about Jesus. And he ends up actually outside of the city gates by a river. And while he's there, he happens to run into a Jewish woman called Lydia. And Luke records in verse 14 that the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And he says, as a result, her whole family are baptised and she invites Paul to come and stay at her house while he's in Philippi. And so things start going really well. They had turned up because Paul had had a crazy dream But now they had somewhere to stay and the beginnings of a small house church. And things continue to go well for a while. The the, the church grows, but then things take an unexpected turn. They end up being followed around by a female slave slash fortune teller. And she follows Paul and his companions around and she shouts at the top of her voice, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Which for like ten minutes is all right. I mean, you know, it's kind of good PA, isn't it? Sort of. But this goes on for hours, and then hours turn into days, and it's literally driving them insane. And eventually, Paul gets so wound up by this woman that he turns around and says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And whatever spirit had hold of her leaves, which for her is great because she's free. But for her masters, who were making quite a bit of money off the fortune-telling business, not such good news. And so they start to rally the people against Paul and another chap called Silas, and they attack them, and they strip them, and they beat them with rods, and they throw them in jail. So suddenly things are not going so well anymore. And then things get even stranger. While Paul and Silas are praying and singing some hymns to keep their spirits up. In jail, there's an earthquake, and the prison door comes off its hinges, and the chains come loose, and the guard wakes up, who perhaps should have been awake anyway, um, sees that the door is gone and assumes that the prisoners have escaped. And rather than face execution at the hands of the authorities, he decides to kill himself. But just before he does, Paul's like, hey, hey, whoa, 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 it's okay. We're all still here. Come down off the chair. It's going to be all right. 
and they save his life. And then, in case he has any more suicidal tendencies, they tell him about Jesus. And he believes, and his whole family believes, and end up being baptised. And so as you read through this chapter, you see that there's a period where they don't really know what's going on. They're not really sure why they're there or what they're supposed to do. They're just kind of wandering around the city. And then there's a period where things are going really well. They've got a base. They've got some followers. Things are looking up. And then there's an awful period where they're beaten and harassed and thrown in jail. And I just wonder which of those times it was most challenging for Paul to believe that God was doing a work in his life and that God was doing a work in Philippi. Do you think that his confidence remained the same throughout all of those circumstances? Because I think it's a bit like us, really. There are times in our life where we're not really sure what we're doing, where we're going, why God has put us where he's put us, what we're supposed to be involved in, who we're supposed to be talking to about Jesus. We're not really sure what's going on. And then there are periods in our life where things are going great. Our lives are filled with abundance, blessings. We have all we need and more. There are people alongside us. It's like we're living in the perfect will of God. And then there are periods where things are really dark, where the future seems bleak, hopeless. We're not really sure why God is putting us through all of this and we're having to face terrible times. And where our confidence in God can take a hit but we can find it really hard to trust him through dark days. But you see, the thing is, ultimately, God was at work in Paul's life through all of those situations. And not only that, but every situation, there was an opportunity for the gospel to be heard and for lives to be changed. And I imagine as Paul is writing this letter, once again incarcerated, he thought about those early days. And even though he might not have realised it at the time, he could now see how God was at work through the good and the bad. And so he says, I was confident. You can be confident in God. You can trust him. I don't know about you, but when I think back at my own journey, I can see how God has used the worst of situations to bring me through and to mould me into who I am today. Even though I may not have realised it at the time, I can see how God has led me through now. And that brings me on to Paul's second thing that he says in this simple verse. He said, it's God that's doing the work in your life. It's him. As I've said already, Paul's intention is never to place himself above Jesus. He simply wants to point people towards him. And Paul did some incredible things. He spread the gospel, planted churches, created entire communities of believers, and yet he would be horrified at the idea of people putting him on a pedestal. Because of Paul... First and foremost, he was a servant of Jesus, a jar of clay, as he describes himself elsewhere, ordinary and fragile and only made extraordinary through the work of Jesus in his life. And so he attributes the success of his ministry not to his own efforts, but to the work of God through him. So, for example, when Paul and Barnabas returned from their first missionary trip, Luke records in Acts 14 that when they arrived back in Antioch, they gathered the church together and reported all that God, all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. There's no sense of ownership by Paul. The work is God's and God's alone. And on another occasion when the church in Corinth is bickering over which leader they prefer, Paul writes, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, 
but God made it grow. It was God. It's God that's at work in you, not me. So it's him that you need to trust. Remember, Paul is coming to the end of his life. Tomorrow is not guaranteed for him. And so he reminds them, this is God's work in you. Not mine, but God's. And we need to make sure that we never have that sense of entitlement or ownership over the work that we do for Jesus. This church isn't Steve's church. It isn't my church. It's God's church. End of story. We're just here to serve with the time that we've been given for as long as he allows us to do so. And it's a challenge. It's a real challenge for us involved in ministry. Are those we are leading relying on us, on our personalities, our energy, or are they relying on God? Because only one of those things makes them a better follower of Jesus. And the same is true for us personally. We need to make sure that we have that correct view of ourselves. Elsewhere, Paul writes... Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many of you of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not to notify the things that are, so that no one can boast before him. This is God's work in us. Not by power nor by might, but by his spirit. Which brings me on to the third thing that Paul wants us to see, which is the nature of the work. He writes that he began a good work in you. So what is this good work and how does God work in us? When we start to follow Jesus, we should begin to notice some external changes in our life. We might start coming to church to be with other believers. We might start reading our Bible and praying. We might even start helping those less fortunate than ourselves. Maybe just swear at the neighbours a bit less. But those outward changes, they come as a result of something that God is doing inside of us. Because when we begin to follow him, when we begin to trust him and give our lives over to him, he begins to do a work in our heart. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel describes it this way. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to follow my laws. The spirit that God has given us is his own, the Holy Spirit, and he has a very important role for us in our lives as believers. Remember I said that we were sanctified by Jesus, but then called to live holy lives in response. Now you've slept since then, haven't you? That's what the Holy Spirit does. He's the one that helps us. He helps us to live lives that are holy and pleasing to God. As Paul puts it a bit later on in this letter, God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. And so we begin to want the things that God wants for us. We begin to understand his heart for the least and the lost and the lonely. We begin to want to fix the problems that we see in the world, to restore the broken and the hurting. And he gives us the power to do that. We become agents of change in the world, vessels for God's work. Our lives become a mission, very much like Paul. There's a verse in Romans 8 um, that everyone really loves. In fact, Steve uh, made reference to it earlier in the service. And it says this, We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, the reason everyone loves this verse is because we all have our own idea of what good looks like. 
Everything working for good is great as long as we get to define what good is, right? But we don't because there's another verse that comes after this one that we sometimes forget to read, which describes what God means by good. And it says this, For God knew his people in advance and chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. The good work that God has begun in our lives is not about living the easy life or having lots of nice things. It's about becoming like Jesus, which is a lot to live up to, right? It doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow process. Sometimes it's a painful process. There are times in my life where God has needed to break me (laughs) in order to build me up the right way. I've been reduced to rubble. I've been through refining fires, as I'm sure many of you because it was necessary to move me one step closer to becoming like Jesus. And I've got a long, long, long way to go yet. Even Paul, who by this time had achieved so much, says later on in this letter that not that I've obtained this, not that I've arrived at my goal, but I press on to take a hold of that for which Christ took a hold of for me. I'm striving to get to the place where Jesus has already gotten on my behalf. That's the good work that God is doing in you. And so the encouragement is this, God is working in you for good, even if right now it feels bad. Okay? God is working in you for good, even if right now it feels bad. And he ain't going to stop until the work is complete. There's a wonderful promise for us here this morning in this verse. God has called you into this life, and he's going to keep working in you until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not done with you yet. I'm sure there are times in your life, as there are times in mine, where I've thought, "Mm, you know what, God's done with me now. He's not interested anymore. I know, I'm too rubbish. (laughs) I've messed up too many times. I know know he's forgiving, I get that, but if he knew, (laughs) he does know, he's God. He's definitely done with me. And you think you've reached the limit, but it's a lie. It's a lie because God is only finished with you on the day that you will meet him face to face. There is more that he wants to do in your life. There is more that he wants to do to make you more like his son and to advance the gospel. And those two things go hand in hand, by the way, because the more we become like Jesus, the better we become at spreading the gospel. God never starts a work and leaves it unfinished. It's not his nature. It might be ours. It's definitely mine. I've got loads of work I haven't finished. Sorry, Steve. Um, (laughs) But it's not his. It's not his way. He never starts a work and leaves it unfinished. As that great hymn in Christ Alone says, from life's first cry until final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. God's not done with you. He's not. I promise. It's in the Bible. And so I want you to be confident this morning, just as Paul had confidence in the Philippians, confident in the work that God has begun in your life. Not your work, not the things that you were doing or things that you were trying to achieve for God, but his work in you. Whether things are going really well or really badly, as they do periodically, I want you to know that God is able to use those circumstances to mould you 
and shape you to be like Jesus. He's going to bring you through it. And maybe you are, as Steve was describing earlier, in a season where at the moment you're just wondering, where are you, God? Why? Why am I facing these tough times? Or maybe, you know, you've just convinced yourself that God has had enough of you, (laughs) that he's done with you, that he's through, that it's over. You need to know this morning that God hasn't abandoned you. He will never leave or forsake you. But he will finish the work that he began in your life. So let's keep pressing forward with him. I wonder if the band would like to come and join me this morning. And let me just pray as we close this section of our service.